Our text this morning is chapter 7 of the Revelation. If you'd open your Bible there or navigate on your device, however you'd like to follow along. It is a good discipline to follow along, uh, not just to make sure that uh, I'm reading it right, but uh, (laughs) the Lord will show you things as you read it. It's your own reading of the scripture. Probably the most important thing we do is read the word of God. Uh, My words can only get in the way sometimes. And uh, so uh, read along with and uh, let the Lord minister to you. So chapter seven, the topic we find here, God seals 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel to preach the gospel in the great tribulation. The title of our message, I seal good. You knew that I would. Father, thank you for bringing us together. We're an absolutely unique group, Lord. A group like this has never met before with these particular individuals at this time with this text. And so, Lord, I only say that because we need to believe and have an expectation that you're here and that it is your desire to touch hearts, to give us hope and help, to answer our questions, Lord, to deepen our walk with you, to do all good things more than we could ever ask or want. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Marine Corps Raiders, Marine Corps Force Recon, Army Green Beret, Army Rangers, Air Force Pararescue, Navy SEALs. Search for elite military units, and these will be on the list. Now, if I got something wrong or overlooked any, don't blame me. Blame military.com. My military knowledge is limited to G.I. Joe action figures. Uh, You know, that's just the way it is. Super special forces are a staple in the movies and on television. Whether it's the Dirty Dozen or the Suicide Squad, humanity depends on their heroics. As Nick Fury put it, the idea is to bring together a group of remarkable people, see if they could become something more See if they could work together when we needed them to fight the battles we never could. There are elite forces in the Bible. In the Old Testament, David had a group of warriors called David's mighty men. The International Standard Version even says they are David's special forces. Their exploits are legendary. After Judas's betrayal and suicide, the believers sought to fill his apostleship. Matthias was chosen, and the group was afterward called the Twelve. They turned the world upside down with the gospel. God has an elite force in the Great Tribulation. An angel introduces John to them in chapter 7. We're calling them Sealed Team 144,000. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed, verse 7. Most futurist scholars believe this chapter reveals the success of their mission at the end, The saved great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues in verse 9, were likely those evangelized by the sealed team. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, seal me and I will be sent. Number two, seal me and I will be heard. Let's take a look at them being sent in verses 1 through 8. I was reflecting upon where Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's Matthew 24, 14. It seems straightforward enough. The gospel must be preached to every person on the earth before Jesus can return. Jesus said he'd return to resurrect and rapture his church to heaven. 
thereby keeping his promise to keep us out of the great tribulation. Seven years later, Jesus will return to the earth in his second coming to establish the kingdom. When he told his disciples, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, Jesus described evangelism that would take place after the rapture of the church and during the great tribulation on the earth. We should do everything we can to reach the world for Jesus in the current dispensation in which we live. However, it is not something that must occur before we can be raptured. The rapture is always imminent. And when Jesus said what he did in Matthew 24, he was talking about the great tribulation. The verses there are set in that future time. And he was saying that uh, it would be a time of great evangelism. Now, we think usually because of movies and TV and everything that the apocalypse or the end times is going to be all disaster and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But Jesus said it's going to be the greatest time of evangelism the world has ever known. Every living creature, every human being, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ during that time and have opportunity to be saved. Uh, And so that's what he meant. Now, in chapter 6, we attended a prayer meeting under the altar in heaven that involved martyrs from the Great Tribulation. Since the church will be gone before the Great Tribulation, who shares Jesus with them? Deploy SEAL Team 144,000, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw... Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Angels must eagerly be awaiting the great tribulation. God is going to task them with amazing missions. Right now, we are partnered with God. And what a bunch of losers, I mean, really, when you think about it. Angels perfectly obey God. They're mighty, they're beautiful, they're powerful. Whenever God gives them a task, they complete it with a a flair. Each of us fails in our own life. But once the church is gone, it's going to be angel time again. And with, uh, you know, just excitement, I'm sure they're going to go forth and do what they're told to do. The four horsemen of the apocalypse wrote out in chapter 6. It's not a type or a figure or an allegory. They are four angels on four heavenly steeds. They see to it that the uh, conditions on the earth correspond to the operational plan for the Great Tribulation. Four additional angels are given a different task. They stand at the four points of the compass to keep the wind from blowing. I've been trying to point out as we go that there are many striking performances and pauses in the Revelation. It is a true future history, but God has a flair for the dramatic. And so we shouldn't Uh, It shouldn't surprise us that Revelation is written in a dramatic visual style. If you have favorite movies that you watch over and over again, within them you will have favorite scenes that you could watch over and over again. Whether it's how they're blocked or the dialogue or what happens, there's something about it that is just worthy of a pause. And so God, having a flair for the dramatic has these angels hold the wind. And I get from this that the air is just absolutely still in the entire earth. It's positively operatic. An eerie stillness comes over the planet. No wind, no breeze, no air movement anywhere. It's not only noticeable, it's palpable. God is pausing the action 
to do something great, and we know it's to seal his great force. Verse two, then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. This five angel unit is on this support assignment. We'll see other units of angels as we read further in the book. The angel tells the four wind blockers that once the servants of God are sealed, then they are cleared to harm the earth. A seal signifies ownership and protection. These are servants, meaning they're owned by God by virtue of him redeeming them from slavery to sin and from Satan. Human beings are slaves to sin and to Satan. And when God, when you get saved, it's as if God has purchased you with his blood out of slavery to be his servant. And that's where we want to be serving the Lord. They're going to enjoy supernatural protection during the great tribulation on the earth. The next time we see them, there are still 144,000 of them. None of them is lost. Will this seal on their foreheads be visible? It will certainly be visible to those who are in the unseen realm. They will be unable to harm them. Verse seven, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. I find it beyond absurd that anyone reading the revelation would mistake the identity of the 144,000 or claim it for themselves or for some other group. As far as being clear goes, this verse is crystal. The tribes of the children of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's physical descendants. Nevertheless, you've probably heard or read uh, people say that the 144,000 are them. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe there were 144,000 special Christians that are already in heaven. Uh, and, you know, that, that position is filled by early Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, there are people who say this is a number that just refers to the church. Why do I say it's absurd? Because if these words don't mean what they plainly mean, then no words in the Revelation or in the Bible mean anything. If the 144, we're the 144,000, how's that? Well, there's not 144,000 of us. So? Some people say it's the church universal. How about we say it's just us? Nobody new comes in ever again. I'll give you a chance to leave if you don't want to get into our cult, but... Pastor Gene got up and declared we're the 144,000. But if I read it in a book or somebody tells me that, that it's just a metaphor for the church, for spiritual people, I think, oh, I guess that could be. No, it can't. Otherwise, words don't mean anything and we ought to just go drink coffee now. God is going to save Israel and the great tribulation is how he's going to do it. The book of Romans devotes three full chapters, 9, 10, and 11, to a discussion of God's future plans for Abraham's physical descendants. We read in Romans, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. So all Israel will be saved. The prophet Jeremiah calls the great tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble. Their persecution will make them realize that Jesus is their Messiah. The great tribulation events that Jesus highlights in the Olivet Discourse 
take place in the Holy Land to Jews. Isaiah and Joel both speak of a group of Jews who will bring the gospel to the world during the Great Tribulation. God wants us to get this so much that he added a monotonous breakdown of the numbers. I don't say that to disrespect the word. Everything in God's word is important and it's there for a reason, well, for many, many reasons and for our meditation. But this is, on one level, a monotonous breakdown of the same number that God gave us. Why? So you could not possibly be confused about what he was talking about. And so see if you can make it to verse 8 with me. (laughs) Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's right. Is that clear? (laughs) Right? 12,000 of the 12 tribes, and here they are. And so just get more bold in your old age. And just when people, if if they start teaching something other than this, I mean, it's not a small disagreement. It's, It's whether or not the word of God is the word of God. Just get up and leave. This list includes the tribes of Levi and Manasseh. It excludes the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. Before you ask why, I should point out that, and I quote, of the nearly 20 Old Testament listings of the 12 tribes, there are not even two lists that are the same. There are various names excluded from certain lists without any explicit significance attached to their exclusion. Since the Bible provides no explanation, any explanation is speculation. If God wanted us to know why Dan and Ephraim didn't make the cut, he would have told us. Now, speculation is fine. It's fun, but it's not so good in the pulpit when you're teaching God's word because uh, it's not the Bible. It's speculation on the Bible. And so, you know, I don't want to spend time telling you my favorite theory about who these, uh, you know, about why they were excluded. God doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. So here's these guys. SEAL Team 144,000. Jews for Jesus. The 12 squared. The Makers Dozen Dozen. The Durable Dozen Dozen, The Salvation Squad. I gave up after that. They've been called 144,000 Billy Grahams. With no disrespect, they will be 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Man, the world that was turned upside down is going to be turned inside out when these guys get done with it. God deploys an evangelistic army. His seal will supernaturally protect them as they preach the good news around the globe to every creature of the last generation before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Seal me and I will be heard, verses 9 through 17. The revelation is sequential. It follows a linear timeline. Jesus will open seven seals on the scroll he takes from his father. When Jesus opens the seventh seal, angels will blow seven trumpets in sequence. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, seven additional angels will pour seven bowls of God's wrath in sequence upon the earth. Then we read, 
it is done. There are many events and episodes chronicled in the Revelation that happen between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. They are essentially flashbacks or flash forwards. We can sometimes pick out where they happen in that seven years, sometimes not, but they're just giving us different information about what takes place during the Great Tribulation. In the film Saving Private Ryan, a squad of army rangers must find Ryan before he is KIA like his other three brothers. The film begins at the end of the story. Then it flashes back to tell the story, and then at the end it flashes back to the beginning and tells the story. And so we should expect, it's a common uh, cinematic tool or literary tool or screenplay, whatever you want to call it. And as I say, the Revelation is, is telling a great story, the greatest story uh, ever told, as it were. And it is definitely going to use these kinds of uh, uh, techniques. Jesus opened the first six seals in chapter six. Instead of the seventh seal being opened now, we get a flashback and a flash forward. The sealing of the 144,000 is a flashback. It happens sometime before Jesus opens the sixth seal, which took us to the end of things. And then verses 9 through 17, we see a flash forward of those who were saved by the gospel preaching through the great tribulation, it being over. And so you see what I'm talking about. So verse 9, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, which no one could number is a literary hyperbole. John wanted to communicate the success of God's program, sending out the 144,000. I mean, obviously God can number them. He has them numbered. He has the numbers of hairs of your head in a book somewhere. And so it's no problem for a, it's not like we, on my table now, Pam is really into buttons. And so we have an enormous jar. I mean, it's half the size of this pulpit filled with uh, antique buttons. And I was thinking today how you would decide how many buttons are in there and what prize we could give for it, you know, but I'd have to count them and I'd go crazy. Somebody would come in and say 12 and then I'd have to start all over again and stuff. And so uh, I don't know why I'm telling you all that, but oh yeah, numbers. Uh, so, but the idea is that they're, they're, it was successful. It's an exaggeration. It's okay for the Bible to exaggerate or hyperbole. Be, I mean, that's a normal way of speaking. It's like saying they were at the four corners of the world and you say, aha, there aren't four corners of the world. And then you look at your watch and say, oh, sunset tonight is going to be at 630. Well, you know what? The sun doesn't set. The sun doesn't move. We move. So it's, it's I think, is that correct? I went to public school, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> Of course, now that the earth is flat, <laughs> all right, so the white robes are actual heavenly garments that additionally serve to illustrate salvation by grace through faith. Humans are bored, uh, bored, yeah, uh, here they are, but anyway, humans are born, born dead in sin. I could get more Baptist. The Bible, I could be Pentecost, I could be anybody. So anyway, the Bible depicts us wearing filthy rags. That's how we look to heaven. Favorite scene of filthy rags, Kevin Costner, Robin Hood. 
He's got on the beggar's outfit so he can steal into the church to see Maid Marian. And on his way in through the gate, he picks up ox dung and he rubs it all over himself so he smells like ox dung. And uh, that's a filthy garment. And the garments that we have on are much worse from heaven's perspective. When a a person believes God, they are declared righteous thanks to the death of Jesus on the cross. He takes away that filthy rags and exchanges it for a white robe of righteousness. The robe cannot be deserved or earned. It is a gift, but without it, you cannot enter heaven. I was in Hong Kong once on a trip smuggling Bibles into Beijing. And uh, during our off time, I was excited to go buy brand name clothing at a fraction of the cost. Too bad the IZOD shirts I purchased were knockoffs sized for hobbits. (laughs) So I got these shirts back to my hotel room. Luckily, I only bought three of them. And uh, because there were only three in my size, uh, because they were all wrapped up, you know. And so I took one out of the package and the little alligator fell off. I thought, well, okay, you know, it's maybe in shipping, it was damaged. And then I opened the thing up and it was tiny. I mean, it, I don't think it was even a toddler shirt. I don't know what, I, but anyway. All of the world's religions and philosophies are knockoffs and they're bad knockoffs. In the end, they are all attempts to launder your filthy garments. None of them, however, provide you with Jesus' robe of righteousness because the stain of sin only comes out by applying lamb's blood. And so here's the situation. All of us, every human being, filthy rags. Maybe your rags are not as filthy as others, but they're still filthy, and you can't go to heaven without a white robe. So you join a religion, or you accept a philosophy, or you come to a belief system that essentially is saying, I can clean myself. I can wash my garment. I will no longer have filthy rags. And heaven says, not unless you have the blood of the lamb, because only blood, it's the only detergent that can take out the stain of sin. And so, uh, good luck. The saved multitudes have palm branches in their hands. Immediately reminds us of Jesus' triumphal entry when the crowd spread palm branches to make way for their king. He was rejected in that first coming, He is received in his second coming. Palm branches are prominent at the annual Feast of Tabernacles. Jews build a temporary structure to camp outdoors. The tabernacles are also called booths. They commemorate the shelter of the Israelites during their 40 years in the wilderness. Just so happens that the Feast of Tabernacles will be a world holiday during the kingdom age. Zechariah 14, verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. The mention of palm branches seems to favor a future earthly celebration sometime perhaps in the millennial kingdom. And so again, we flashed back in verses one through eight. Now we're flashing forward to see things after the second coming. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation in the Bible is threefold. You are saved the instant you believe God and he counts it as your righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, accredited to him as righteousness. And so you're saved the moment you believe. You can't be any more saved 
than that. But you are being saved in the sense of being sanctified, walking day by day with the Lord, you're becoming more like him, growing in personal holiness. And then you will be perfectly saved when you are resurrected or raptured because you will be in a glorified body, incapable of sin and able to exercise free will without sinning. Salvation is only available as a gift from God. As I said, only the blood of the lamb can cleanse you. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. In chapter four, we identified the 24 elders as a heavenly council of supernatural beings who from time to time are called together to assist God the Father. They appear behind the scenes several times in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the book of Deuteronomy, for example. The church is safe in heaven during this time, but the 24 elders are not the church. Worship is a significant activity in heaven as well it should be. They praise God for blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power and might. Each of these words has many definitions, many applications. It is therefore impossible to exhaust their depth and their breath. And so I could, for myself, say, okay, here's what blessing means, and here's what glory means, and here's what wisdom means. But is it? It's something, perhaps, that it means, but not everything that it could mean. And so instead of defining them or looking in a dictionary for them, we each ought to reflect upon them in our own life and circumstances. For example, I noticed there are seven praises in this list, seven words. Maybe take one of them each day and just think about it all day. Make Taco Tuesday Thanksgiving Tuesday this week. Where, and I'm not talking about getting into a closet and, you know, with your fingers like this in a lotus position and, and emptying your mind. Think about what it means to be thankful and to, give, to have Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for kind of a thing? Why is God deserving of my Thanksgiving? Uh, I mean, let your mind, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit take your mind in direction so that you really kind of think about what that is. You can never exhaust giving God thanks, could you? And so think about that as far as where you are and where you've been. Uh, think about some, maybe, maybe something you're going through that you can be thankful for that maybe five years ago, if it had happened, you would be bitter and angry and resentful. But now you've grown and you understand that the Lord is with you no matter what. It's just things like that. And, and just uh, take it on yourself. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? The elder asked John the question rather than vice versa. You know, John must have been wondering what he was witnessing. I mean, this is all fantastic. Ask questions about a text when you are reading the Bible. Study it in that way. But don't forget to wait on it and let it ask questions of you. Interact with it as a living word. And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. John defers. He says, he's asked a question in heaven, put on the spot as it were, and he says, you know. You don't need to be a know-it-all regarding spiritual things. The man born blind whom Jesus healed could not answer the probing questions of the religious leaders. He told them he was blind, but now I see. 
It stumped them. And so this blind beggar, blind from birth, uh, uh, somebody that was no one to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, now they're questioning him. Who talked to you? What's his theology? Where is he coming from? This poor guy, I mean, you know, doesn't even have a chance to really rejoice that he's sighted. In a sense, his first sight is a bunch of religious zealots and bigots who don't want to give up their positions and power. And he says, guys, a minute ago I was blind, now I see. If you're saved, you know more about what is essential than the most brilliant non-believer. Do you ever say to somebody or hear somebody say, oh man, that guy, guy I work with, super smart, knows the Bible backwards and forward. He's intimidating. Is he saved? No. Then he's ignorant in the most essential thing that there is. Salvation. No, you, you, it shouldn't you know, make you overbearing or proud. It should keep you humble, but it's the truth. And so, you know, we, we don't back down when it comes to, this, to salvation because you have it. Many of you have a, a testimony of a, a, an adult coming to Christ. Ten seconds ago, I was in bondage and chains to sin and to slavery, to Satan. And now I've been set free and I didn't even do anything except believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Now I've got this power inside of me that, that is cleaning up my life without me having to do anything. Well, I know what a hypotenuse is. Okay, who cares? That's the only smart thing I could think of right then. <laughs> is it a triangle thing? The hypotenuse of a triangle, is that correct? I made it as far as half of geometry. And then public school drove me to drink. But anyway, <laughs> public schools are much better now, right? If you're, no, I'm, uh, if you're a public school teacher, I love you. You weren't my public school teacher. How's that? I'm just talking about my experience. Hey, my experience is my experience. You can't say anything about it. Every believer can be described as having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It isn't something you do because you must be given the robe in its already pristine condition. So it's a washed robe is the idea. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Don't read this as a job description. It's a joy description. One of David's Psalms puts it into this perspective. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so it's a uh, it's not that that's all you're ever going to do for eternity. It's that your heart is filled with the joy that you can do that and that you can serve the Lord. Verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. These conditions describe a person on the run without resources. They are subject to the elements and they are malnourished. No more, never again, they will be home. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus was and is unique as the God man who alone in all the universe could die in your place as the lamb. Knowing what it's like to live as a human as the lamb, he is the perfect heavenly shepherd. 
Do you know that God saves all of your tears? At least that's what it says in Psalm 56, eight. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Every tear is accounted for in a ledger. Now, when I cry watching the movie Cars, when Doc Hudson comes, give me a minute. No, I'm just, I do cry. I haven't watched it for a while, so I'm not sure. But anyway, you know, when you cry, you just, water comes out of your eyes, right? It, it doesn't come out one tear at a time. And so somehow God says, yeah, I know how many tears you actually cried. If you, if you, you know, first of all, he knows the definition of a tear, I guess. Maybe there's a scientific definition, but, but I don't know how much a tear weighs or what its circumference is. But he says, yeah, I know. And I know how many tears that there have been. And I was thinking about this, you know, God doesn't keep track. He probably has an angel to do this. What did that guy do to, to get ledger duty on tears? <laughs> One, two, you know, did I use the line met four, blank, four, five, four, five. Okay, I got it. 17 quintillion during that movie. But that's what it says. And every tear is accounted for in a ledger. It's great. In heaven, that account will be drained Get it? Water, drain. Drain the swamp, drain... No, anyway, whatever. God's going to wipe away every tear. I don't think it means you're going to suffer memory loss. Not going to go there. You will understand things in a way that you cannot until you are glorified. It's as simple as that. I mean, I think of things, I say, Lord, how can I ever be happy if this, or because of this, or knowing this, uh, and the Lord says, I'm going to wipe away every tear and you're going to understand things in a glorified body. We, we, we can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a glorified body without sin. And it's not simply that we won't cry anymore. God will heal every emotional wound and pain once for all. We will be perfected. God's saved, sealed servants will be heard and multitudes will receive Jesus' mission accomplished. There's another elite unit we need to discuss, and it is the church. It's us. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, we're told God has sealed us, given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1.13 and 14 is even more specific. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so quite simply, what Paul is saying in, that, uh, in those verses is, you heard the gospel and got saved. You didn't know it, but the Holy Spirit sealed you. That's one of his ministries so that you are secure now until the end. That's what he says. Apologist Don Stewart writes this. He says, we do not seal ourselves. It is completely an act of God, and there are no outward signs which accompany the sealing of the Spirit. He pause for a moment from what Don is saying to say, you know, a lot of times in Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches, they'll say, you need to say, speak in tongues as a sign that you've been saved, or, the, or as a sign that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Spirit is just something that happens, you'd say, in the background. There's no accompanying, uh, you know, activity. You get saved and part of the, the you know, program, part of the package is that the Holy Spirit 
seals you. So this goes on to say, those who have been sealed uh, by the Holy Spirit belong to the God of the Bible. Thus, when the Holy Spirit seals the believer, he guarantees that person's security. God's authority is behind the sealing. The sealing is thus a promise that the salvation the Christian receives is granted both now and forever. Whomever he seals, he claims as his own, and he will never abandon them. You are not sealed to be protected from physical harm. The church age is a dispensation during which God is glorified in our weakness. Your sealing is far greater. It is the guarantee that he who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Elite units normally have ridiculously high standards. According to military.com, only about 6% of Navy SEAL applicants meet the requirements. And then after that, odds on completing training are only 25%. You are sealed before you are trained. You are instantaneously equipped with everything you need. You are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And you have access to all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Now, you don't know everything you could know or want to know or maybe even need to know at some point. That's where we grow in the Lord, by reading his word and praying and uh, meeting with other Christians, being discipled, that kind of thing. And as the years go by, you, you attain more and more knowledge. But in terms of being ready... To, to greet the world, the moment you're saved, you've been sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit and you're ready to go. As long as you're just humble and depend on him and kind of maybe for a long time, you're just acting like the man born blind. People pepper you, you try and share Jesus and they hit you with this and they hit you with that and they hit you with that and you say, look, all I know is that before I was saved, this was my life. And then I was introduced to Jesus Christ and the moment that happened, my life completely changed and I found that I had a power to overcome what I could never overcome before without even trying to do it. That's what I know. Then you go to church, you go to Bible study and you know a little bit more and you know a little bit more and you know a little bit more. Sadly, some people know too much more in, what, in the sense that they give up on what they originally were. They say, well, I don't really need the spirit. Having begun in the spirit, I can now be made perfect in the flesh. I know what to do in this situation. Uh, this is what you do here. This is what, and we quit depending on the Holy Spirit. But I think you get the idea. It, this isn't a thing where you know you're you're building up to being the elite spiritual force of Christians on planet Earth, and, and that only one out of a thousand of us can be taken. Only one person from this you know congregation might qualify for being a super saint. No, all of us are empowered right now to do the work of the ministry. And on top of that, we have a pretty good idea that God has placed us where he wants us. I mean, maybe some of us are out of the will of God, and, you know, but even then, God will work with us. But we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got our own testimony. We're where God wants us. Let, let it happen. In one important sense, you do not need more of anything except the willingness to yield to God, the Holy Spirit. 